How many enemies would you say that you have? Now, you might be like me, and I would think at first, I don't have any enemies. But the longer you live, the more you recognize that there are people or events or circumstances that could pose a threat to do you harm. We all know that. In fact, all the way on the other side of the world, this morning early, three churches were bombed in Sri Lanka, and over 200 people lost their lives. Over 450 injured. Some of you remember 20 years ago yesterday at Columbine. It was a very sobering day for a lot of us as we saw people remembering those events unfold. Thirteen people lost their lives. And I think that probably touched us more deeply because it was closer to us. Something that's on the other side of the world, people we don't know, we have no connection with. It seems a little more distant. But every single one of us have enemies. There are people that stand against us to hurt us, to harm us. There are threats, there are circumstances, there is the unknown of what might happen, an accident, a plane crash, a car crashing into someone, or some sudden sickness or illness, or long-term care that we have. And this is what we have in common, that we all have these things. The Apostle Paul said, we are troubled on every side. And so we live in a world that does experience trouble and the effects of sin. And they all touch us. While your path, your life, your enemies may follow a different course than mine or the person seated next to you, they all end at the same place. The final enemy. The final enemy for you is the same final enemy for me. It's death. And through the ages, for every person that has ever been born and lived a life, that is the inevitable. It's like the stalking. Death stalks us all life long. It, it could happen at an early age as a child or as a teenager, a young adult. You could live to be 100. I was reading about one man in Texas is now over 110. You could live a very long time. But eventually... Death will impact every single one of us. And it, there's nothing that will be closer than when it's you. And so that's why this day is an incredible day. And this is what the Apostle Paul says. If you want to turn there, you can, or you can just look with me. I'll put it up on the screen here for you to be able to see. This verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 26. Here's what Paul says. He says, the last enemy to be abolished is death. The last enemy to be abolished or completely destroyed is death. And I think if we, if we take a look at that statement, that's a pretty powerful, loaded statement. And for a lot of us who are a bit inquisitive, we ask, how could that be? How, how can death that we all face and every person has faced be abolished? 
And that's when we go back to the first few verses of 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul is writing a letter. This is a, a letter to a people in the city of Corinth, Greece, and he's writing a letter of encouragement about these truths. And this is what he says. He says, now I want it to make clear for you, brothers and sisters, the gospel I preach to you, which you received, on which you have taken your stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold to the message I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. For I passed on to you as most important what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, which is Peter, then to the twelve, then he appeared to over 500 brothers and sisters at one time. Most of them are still alive, but some of them have fallen asleep or passed away. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all, as to one born at the wrong time, he also appeared to me. So Paul is writing out of personal experience of seeing the risen Jesus who was crucified and he was dead and he was buried. In fact, of all of the miracles in the Bible, this is probably the one most authenticated throughout history was the resurrection of Jesus. And this is what he is saying. If you look back to the first four verses, he opens up with this statement. I want to make it clear for you. I want to make it clear. And what I, I realize, too, about this gospel, or we would say instead of the word gospel, we might say good news, about this good news, that it is incredibly simple, it is incredibly clear, it is incredibly powerful, because it impacts that final enemy, that last enemy. So what does he make clear? If we look at really these verses he explains what he wants to make crystal clear that we all understand and we have the assurance and the peace of eternal life. The first thing that he wants to make clear is that heaven and eternal life is a free gift. If you'll notice this about this verse, when he says, I passed on to you the most important thing, Christ died, he was buried, he rose again. Real, authentic Christianity is not about what you do. It's about what is done. There's a big difference. And most religions will take the wonderful story of Easter and still put pressure on you of what you've got to do, what you have to do, what you have to do. Do this, do this, do this, do this. But the real declaration of the gospel message, the good news is, you don't need to do anything. It's been done for you. It has been done. Finished. When Christ cried on the cross, you remember those words? It is finished. Not that he was finished, but the payment for your sin. So heaven in eternal life fundamentally is a free gift from God. In Ephesians chapter 2, it says this, For you are saved by grace through faith, 
And this is not from yourselves, it is God's gift, not from works, so that no one can boast. Now, where does good works play in all of this? God's not against good works. I don't think any of us, you parents aren't against good works with your kids. We're not against that. But that's not how you have eternal life. We do good works because we've received the gift, not to gain the free gift of eternal life. And there's a big difference. Works would be getting to church on time, reading my Bible every day, doing the right thing, obeying God, being baptized. There are many good things we can do in life. But heaven and eternal life is a free gift from God. That's exactly what that scripture says. If I were to buy something for you and wrap it up, And I had spent, I could have spent a lot of money on this gift, depends on you, but uh, I could have spent a lot of money. It's not that the the gift I'm going to give you is cheap or it didn't cost something. But when I give it to you, I don't expect you to pull out your wallet or your purse and say, let me pay you for that. It's not the nature of a gift. If I'm selling you something, that's another thing. That's why God calls this the gift of eternal life, the gift of heaven. It's a free gift, and it, and it wasn't cheap, and it did cost something. But God offers to you that gift. And I think we get better clarity on that when we understand what God says about brothers and sisters, mankind. That's us. <laughs> what does God say about our condition of where we are? In Romans chapter 3 and verse 23, it says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That means everyone has sinned, even the guy talking to you. Some of you may find that hard to believe, but even the one speaking today, we have all sinned. You can talk to my wife afterwards. We've all sinned. And this has affected and impacted all of us. You say, well, what is, what is sin? I don't think I've sinned. Well, a sin, as God defines it, is anything that is a wrong thought or word or action that is displeasing to God. So when I say all have sinned and fall short of God's glory, in other words, his perfect holy standard, there's not one person in here that has not fallen short. Now, I thought this, if if I lived a really good life, I mean, I'm, I'm just like way up there, super special, and I only sinned one time a day, which I've never had a day in my life <laughs> where I've only sinned once, if you count thoughts and words and actions, and I only sinned one sin a day, and I lived to be 80, I calculated this. I would have committed 29,200 sins. That's a lot of sins. How many sins does it take to be a sinner? It's one. And it's interesting what James says about this. In James chapter 2 and verse 10, he says, For whoever keeps the entire law and yet stumbles at one point, he's guilty of breaking it all. That's kind of depressing, isn't it? <laughs> you say, you know what, well, I've done this, I've done this, I've done this, I've done this. 
But at one point, at one time, I've said, I am a sinner. And I can't save myself. Now, I know a lot of times we think, well, maybe my good works will outweigh my bad works. You know, if if I commit a crime and I murder someone, and the rest of my life I do good works, it doesn't change the fact that I murdered someone. And so this permeates us. If you, were, you got up this morning, you're making an omelet, and you have all these wonderful ingredients, and you're chopping them all up, and you've got all your vegetables, and, and if you're in Boulder, we don't have bacon in this one, but we'll, we'll have all of your chopped up all these ingredients. And he's saying, this is tremendous. Everything is fresh. And then so you put it in a bowl and you're mixing this up and you're cracking the eggs and putting them in there and it just can't wait. And the last egg you put in there is rotten. How much of that omelet is rotten? It's the whole thing. And this is what sin does. Sin permeates our being. And it makes us guilty before God. So this is our condition, and I think most of us recognize that, that we have sinned. So how does God see that? And it's interesting when you get better clarity, too, when he talks about this clarity of God. If I were to ask you, uh, what's the first thing you think about when you think about God? What comes to your mind? Okay, love. What else comes to your mind? Grace. What do you think a lot of people out there think of when they think of God? Judgment? Now, does God judge? Is God holy? He's righteous? The first thing I want us to notice is God is love. This is what John tells us. God is love. Not just does he love people, he is the essence of love and everything God does. And God loves you more than you will ever be able to comprehend. More than you'll ever be able to comprehend. I believe this, that the love of God is the overriding theme of all of the message that he gives to us, is the love of God. And God, in his love, wants you, he wants to receive you one day to heaven with him. So when your physical body dies... God loves you so much. He created you. He wants you to be with heaven and heaven with him forever. Now, we know that because the Bible just all the way through the scriptures teaches us about the love of God. But God is also holy. In fact, you really can't have a perfect love without also having holiness. God is just. He is perfect. His standard is perfection. In Exodus chapter 34 and verse 7, it says, But he will not leave the guilty unpunished. Now picture this, if you could, if a a judge is standing before the court. And he's a very well-respected judge. Because he is very kind and gracious and loving and compassionate. But he's also very respected because he's just. You see, he couldn't be respected if he wasn't just. And so all of his actions must be just to be a good judge. One day, they drag his own son 
to his surprise in front of the court, who's been charged with a serious crime. He sees his son and he wants to pardon him. (laughs) He wants to pardon him. He loves his son. But he can't pardon him and still be just. And yet he feels like I can't be just and still be a good father and love my son. And so this is really what I call the incredible tension that is created by God being both loving and just. He loves you and wants to receive you into his perfect heaven, but he's holy and just and cannot have you a sinner in his perfect heaven. We've got a problem. And the problem is solved in his son Jesus. This is, this is really the story of the good news. God solves this problem by sending his son to the earth. It's like you say, don't make me come down there. <laughs> he came down there. And he came down. Now who is Jesus? The Bible declares him to be the word. He is in the beginning was the word. The word was with God, and the Word was God. This is Jesus. In verse 14 of John, chapter 1, it says, And the Word, Jesus, became flesh. In other words, this is when He came to earth. And we observed His glory, the glory as the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So Jesus is God in flesh. He came here. What was the reason He came? People say, well, to his teaching, his example, his miracles, all those things are great. But he came for a reason. He came for a reason. He came to rescue us, to resolve the tension that had been created by that loving, just judge of wanting to receive his people, but also being holy. And what he did in Isaiah chapter 53, which was written, this was written 700 years before Jesus was born. So it's just an amazing scripture. These scrolls were found uh, back in 1946 in a cave in the Qumran and, and dated back 700 years before Christ was born. So you see how the prophetic this is. We all went astray like sheep. We've all turned to our own way. And the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. So in other words, Jesus took the punishment for your sin on the cross. You know, I, I liken it this way. If I, if I were to take uh, this little notebook I have, but if I were to say that this notebook is a story of my life, and uh, there are probably some ups and downs, uh, some drama, in the story of my life, if you had one of these two. And, and in this book, I have a title page that is my birth certificate. It's a few years ago. And on the very last page, I have a death certificate. And all this in here is everything I've said, thought, or done in my life. Every sin, every good thing, everything. And... You look at God in heaven, and I'm here on earth. And God wants me to be with him forever in heaven. He, want, he, wants, he desires for me to be in heaven. But 
My record is I'm a sinner. And so while God loves me, he hates my sin. And he must punish my sin if he's just. So this is the tension I was talking about. So here's what happens. God loves me. He hates my sin. He will judge my sin. He will pour out his wrath on my sin. But God sent his son onto this earth. And this is exactly what this verse is saying. He laid on him the iniquity of us all onto Jesus. All of my sin, all of your sin, all of the world's sin on one man. And he died on the cross. And when you think back to almost 2,000 years ago, when Jesus died on the cross, they spat on him, they whipped him, they falsely accused him, they berated him, they scourged him, they pierced him, and they nailed him to a cross, accusing him wrongly. Never was there ever anything so unjust. And God at that time poured out all of his fury and wrath and anger against that sin. And Jesus took it. He took it. That's how much God loves you. He sent his own son to take that sin. Well, Jesus, we're cleared because he took the punishment. He died, he was buried, and he rose again. Isn't that amazing? He rose again. He conquered not only your sin and my sin, he conquered death by rising again. And he offers to us eternal life. And this is when I come back full circle to this. How do we have eternal life? In Acts chapter 16, verse 31, it says, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. In other words, this is true for all of us if you believe. Now, I've thought often, I've always believed. I don't know if you, but I, I believe in God. I believe in Jesus. I believe in, I believe in everything you said. But this belief is a faith, and the, it, is, it is not just an intellectual assent. Because there are many people that have an intellectual assent. It's not a temporal faith to where you say, well, I, I believe it's going to be uh, sunny this morning. <laughs> it's not that kind of faith. This faith is a, a putting your trust, you're transferring your trust from yourself and you're putting your trust in Jesus alone for eternal life. Let's imagine your life is a ship and you're sailing off into the horizon and a storm comes and it starts to break away at the ship and, and the ship begins to sink and just bust apart and, and you end up in the ocean floating on a plank and there's nothing in sight and you know that you're, you're going to drown soon but you're holding desperately onto this plank and that plank would represent probably you being able to get it done. That's my ship. My ship's broken apart because of my sin. I'm, I'm holding on to what I'm going to do. And along comes a rescue boat. And they see you and they come. And they throw out the life preserver. And they say, let go of the plank. <laughs> oh, I don't want to let go of the plank. 
let go of the plank and grab the life preserver. So you let go of trusting in yourself or religion or good works or baptism or communion or you're a church member. You let go of all the things that you might do for God and you put your trust in what God did for you in Jesus. So there is a point in time where you transfer your trust to Jesus. And that is, you say, well, that's, that's so simple. It is. But wouldn't it make sense if God really loved you? And he loved little children? He would make it as simple as possible? I'm not saying it's easy. It's not easy always to let go, to quit trusting in my good works. But this is what he has done. I love the verse in Revelation that speaks about receiving this free gift and, and all that goes with it. In Revelation 3.20, it says, See, I, this is Jesus speaking, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. You know what that's saying? Is that God loves you, but he's going to allow you to make this decision for yourself. <clears throat> he's not going to force it on you. But he wants you to believe. And so he knocks. He doesn't beat the door down. He doesn't kick it in. He doesn't grab you and yank you out. He says, I'm standing at the door of your heart, and I knock. If you'll open the door, I will come in. So I thought, this is the greatest news ever told. That's what Easter is about. This is what he speaks about in bringing clarity to that passage here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and how death and sin both are abolished. So if you're at a place in your life, you say, well, I, I think I believe that. What I've tried to do this morning is just show you from what God said. I know I'm a sinner. I know that. That's not confusing. I know I can't save myself. I know I'm going to die. It makes sense what God has done to rescue me, and he's offered to me eternal life. A lot of things I don't understand, but I would like to receive Christ as my Savior. If that's you today, I'm not going to, you know, don't anybody be nervous because I'm not going to put you on the spot or anything like that, but I would like to just show you a typical prayer because I'd say, how does someone do this? I just ask God. Just ask God. <laughs> I mean, Wherever you are, you're in the car, you're walking down the street, you're at home, you're right where you are, right? Ask God, ask God. So this prayer, I kind of put this together, and I'd like you just to follow this with me. It says, Lord Jesus, thank you for your gift of eternal life. I know I'm a sinner and do not deserve eternal life, but you loved me so. You died and rose from the grave to purchase a place in heaven for me. I now trust in you alone for eternal life and repent of my sin. Please take control as Lord of my life. Thank you 
so much. Now, that's not the official prayer. I'm not saying that, but that it, it is the kind of prayer. God will just, it's like someone just saying, Lord, help. <laughs> Lord, help. You can say it that way. But I feel like on Easter, this is, I, I love sharing this story because this is central to everything else. Now, there are a lot of other things we, we don't figure out. Over the next few weeks, I'm going to keep on preaching on overcoming. Next week is going to be overcoming the challenges of daily life. But this is the big one. And if you have never put your faith and trust in Jesus alone for eternal life, I would invite you to do that today. That's between you and God. But while we're here, I'd like to just ask that we bow our heads. We're going to pray in a moment. And um, I'll lead us in prayer. But if, if you're here today and you've never really done this, I'd invite you just to, to find the great assurance and joy of knowing this is true for you. Because this is not just for everybody. This is for you. And I'd invite you to pray this prayer with me. And then after you do, I'll just lead us in prayer and we'll be closing our service. But if you feel like this is me, I I know I need to do this. I know I need to do this. I would like to do this this morning. Just pray silently to yourself and to the Lord these words. Lord Jesus, thank you for your gift of eternal life. I know I'm a sinner and do not deserve eternal life, but you loved me. So you died and rose from the grave to purchase a place in heaven for me. I now trust in you alone for eternal life and repent or you turn from my sin. Please take control as Lord of my life. Thank you so much. As our heads are still bowed and Right before I pray, as I said, I'll not embarrass you, but as I close, if you prayed that prayer this morning to receive Jesus, would you just lift your hand? Just lift your hand so I could see, and then I'll I'll go ahead and close this. Thank you. Thank you. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for your gift of eternal life for making it so clear for us. Thank you for giving us hope and assurance. I pray for each of these that for the first time today put their faith and trust in you as Savior. That you give them a desire now to enjoy the relationship they have with you every day. And Lord, I pray for others here that may have made that decision in the past that you would give us today a very special joy and appreciation for what you've done. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.